Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often a hidden journey uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed with timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Paul Egan, the CTO at Founders Factory. We explore motivations, impact, how he found work, when to give up, and we use the analogy of navigating a maze to think through life's big working decisions. Paul has watched the birth of hundreds of companies and thousands of careers at Founders Factory. As a result, he understands and communicates his own story with real clarity and real insight. I'd love to dive into how you've made decisions between offers too in the past and what types of things you've waited. Well, um, one starting point for that, which I... Uh, definitely talk to others about, especially if they're earlier in their career, is, again, it's about this opportunism uh, point that I was talking about earlier, uh, you know, that you, you and if you follow that line of thought, if you, you, you definitely want to have opportunities in front of you. And so I've often uh, advised, and certainly it was something that I uh, learned for myself, was to make sure that when it comes to uh, like an interview that whether it be you know a a half hour screening call or that first maybe hour long interview to make sure that i had the option should i wish of moving forward uh, as in uh, even if i was not a hundred percent sure about the opportunity early on just to like present a um, a version of me which I would feel confident would move forward to that next stage. Not not exaggerating or, or lying or anything like that, but but just putting that best foot forward. So then I have the choice, basically, to be in control as to whether you are moving forward or not. Uh, and um, I, you know, that's obviously easier said than done. Um, but there is two. Let's maybe even call them tricks that I have um, found useful for myself. <clears throat> One is around trying to do the job. And the second is around this point that we were talking about earlier about um, mission or values alignment. And I think both of them are kind of independent of the type of role that you're you're, you're going for. So on the first one, kind of do, doing the job. Uh, I guess I, you know, the re- one of the reasons why this is on uh, is something that I have felt is a good trick is I, uh, you know, as we were chatting about earlier or the last time we, um, I was saying that I was lucky enough that very early in my career, I was um, building teams from 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 uh, from the beginning and therefore had that interviewer um, experience and interviewer mindset and putting that into. Um, so empathizing a little bit with that in, interviewer um, uh, viewpoint, a key thing that you are looking for is, does this person 
really seem engaged with the, with with the role, with the company, with what they're what they're trying to do. And a key way to kind of showcase that is that you're really kind of leaning into what will the job look like, uh, like a simple signal that I often look for and have shown in interviews and that it has proved to work well for me is to quickly adopt the kind of terminology that you would use if you were part of the team. So, for example, rather than like this is a really simple thing, but rather than saying, you know, what what challenges are, are you facing? You can say, well, if we are working together on this, what challenges are, will we be facing? And it, it's very kind of subtle, but it, it's a very strong clue to an interviewer that this person is already, in, you know, a, a, a team player. Uh, and, you know, following along those lines, and this, is, this sometimes comes up when people are wondering what kinds of questions to ask. A kind of very obvious question to be asking is to say, okay, if we're working on this together, what kind of challenges are we facing? Who would I be working with? Who can we pull ar around this uh, challenge? Um, how are we are we going to work together on this? Uh, or will I be working a bit more independently? Uh, what other stakeholders do we do we need to involve? And almost beginning to do the job right there and then. There is, a, there is an example that really springs to mind for me for this. It was when I was living in, in Melbourne and um, the, the, it was a fast-growing startup. They, it, was a, it was chaotic, really. But um, the two people who were interviewing me kind of looked at, at my CV and were kind of looked up and kind of said, I don't think you're a good fit. This was like right at the very beginning. Um, because they said we were looking for a, a webmaster role. Uh, back in the 90s, a webmaster was somebody who copied files around to web servers and things and maybe just did kind of general uh, content management. And when they when they asked, you know, are you a webmaster? I, I was like, yeah, I'm probably not right. But then we got talking about what it was they were facing as challenges and they were multiple, everything from infrastructure problems to their application layer not working all across the board. And we just, I, you know, I jumped into that conversation with tell me a bit more about your challenges, started talking through about who they were currently working with. That very naturally actually kind of brought a few other people into the room to talk through about the challenges that they were facing and how maybe I could help. Uh, it did not take long before we kind of left that meeting room and went in front of a computer and started playing around with some things. And it was, uh, you know, pretty much later in the day where the two people who were originally interviewing me kind of came back and said, so I, do you want to come back tomorrow kind of thing? <laughs> you know, I pretty much already had the team around me um, and we were all ha happily working together. And that, that was um, a, a role that I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, for um, the time that I was there. But one of the key things for sure to make sure I had the option to do that was to um, was to just try and try and do the job. Uh, you know, uh, that that signals to an, an interviewer that um, that uh, you are, are are deeply engaged. Um, I, I do. I, I'm going to. I have too many of these stories that I could probably spend way too much time talking about. But the one, <clears throat> I did a few days beforehand 
have another interview like that where I had deliberately said, right, I'm going to try and do the job as much as possible. But it was with two people who didn't really know tech very well. I, I won't tell this story too long, even though I do have a longer version. But basically, they were trying to describe the problem, didn't really understand it. We got a computer out. And it, in the end, it turned out it was really trivial. And the, you know, the, what ended up happening is I did the job in, in the interview um, because they didn't really know whether it was like if they had been told by others that it was maybe potentially a three month piece of work. But it turned out to be a small bit of JavaScript. Um, we were all left at the end kind of a little bit stumped as to what to do next as they were like, mm, that's the job done. Do we pay you? And I was like, mm, I, I don't know. Just let, let's just leave it at that. Um, but that, that for me is one kind of key, simple tip, both on the kind of language you use. Like let we, us, <clears throat> started adopting some of that team terminology. And then secondly, the questions that you're asking should be leading to how we actually move things forward. Not, you know, long term in the future, but, you know, what, what's the next thing that we can do and what does that look like at a very practical level? Who are we working with? What are the, um, uh, you know, the, the outcomes that we're looking to achieve? And uh, that has served me well over the years when I wanted to have the option of moving forward to that next stage. With, with, with those anecdotes of sometimes where it went a bit wrong. Why do you think that embodying the job works so well? Well, I think it's relatively simple for me in that, um, you know, in many ways, an interviewing process is, uh, you know, a, a not very good proxy for how we might try and either demonstrate our capabilities or as an interviewer to understand whether the person that's in front of them can really do the job. Uh, we obviously have interview processes which try to go a little bit further with maybe a practical test or something like that to maybe demonstrate those skills even even further. Um, but if you can, we and again, we would probably recognize too that maybe one of the best tests that you can do uh, in, a, in an interviewing process is one that most, um, most aligns with the job. It's often why, you know, there's... Um, arguments about, you know, some big tech companies giving you <clears throat> some esoteric algorithmic challenge to, to overcome when actually, you know, the day job doesn't require you to do a traveling salesman problem or, or, or something like that. You know, ideally the test is something that reflects what you're actually doing in, in the day job. <clears throat> but more importantly, you know, a lot of uh, what you need to do in the role is to communicate, is to understand, and is to um, suggest solutions. And so if you're leaning into that in, in the interview, I, you know, it, it just makes the interviewer's job a lot easier. They're seeing your capability demonstrated in, in, in front of you, in front of them. Do you have any other behavioral tips that can help you in an interview? Uh, well, the other, it's maybe not necessarily a behavioral one, but the other one that I think is really important uh, and again, just makes it the, you, the, the, your job easier as an interviewer. Um, so 
I've talked a little bit about the, the two-way empathy, like as an interviewer, you want to empathize with the candidate and vice versa. As a candidate, you want to empathize with the interviewer. What are they looking for? Why is it? Um, I would think that a good line manager, a good employer, a good interviewer should be looking for um, values and, and um, our mission and values alignment. We talked a little bit about those the, the last time in the context of doing your best work, that you, you often do that when you feel like you're aligned with the, the team and the company. And um, maybe there's even a close coupling of what you're trying to achieve with that of, of the business. And of course, the, the values alignment speaks to the way of, of working. Uh, and you will do your best work in, in, in that kind of environment. And most good interviewers would recognize that too. Clearly, you would want both the functional expertise and, you know, alignment with, with, with mission and values. But, um, but I would think that all other things being equal, you would probably go for somebody, like if you've got somebody who's perfect and functionally expert, but doesn't align on, on, on values or doesn't really care about your mission, they're probably not a good fit. Uh, if you maybe have 60, 70% of the functional expertise required, but you do align uh, on, on mission and values, then almost certainly, you know, that's going to be the preference to, to hire that, that, that second example. And if you recognize that as a, as a candidate, then it's, it is actually quite easy to, to, to demonstrate that. And this, uh, honestly, again, these, these, the way to do this is, is, is pretty straightforward in that um, most companies these days do publish what their mission and what their values are. It, it only takes five minutes to go and look them up. And you can kind of expect that there will be some form of questioning which will, will revolve around this. You know, if, if it's a company that values um, putting the customer first, the customer is almost always right. Um, that customer focus, you're going to get a you're going to get a question that's that's going to be um, maybe asking about previous experience where maybe there was a bit of tension between what did the customer want and maybe what was what you felt was maybe better and how you might maybe compromise around that. Maybe you know there's a value of forgiveness over permission or something like that, which kind of speaks to, uh, you know, whether you move forward independently versus kind of building consensus before you move forward with something. And in both cases or in any of these cases, you can kind of think about some examples from, from your past that you kind of have at, at, at the ready if the question is asked. But even better is to actually bring them forward before you're asked. I can think again of my own experience as an interviewer where I have been most excited by a candidate is when, you know, I'm, I've got this mental checklist of some values that I want to have demonstrated. I have maybe some questions that would, would um, kind of probe around them. But if somebody's already jumping in and, and, and demonstrating that, uh, you know, actually, I, in the last couple of years, there's a couple of examples of like that that I can think of that I almost just wanted to go screw the rest of the, the you know the process. Fuck it, I, like you're the person, uh, you're you're hired on, on the spot. Um, 
where you know even you know other interviewers who were in the room kind of also recognized that as we had talked about what we were going to look for came out of that interview and going wow they nailed it did not even have to go after some of the things that I, that I really care about um this, so that and I this has some overlap with the previous topic as well like when when if you if you are asked for any questions from your side you a place to probe for sure is around the ways of work the values that are important to the organization and and to the team uh, and it, it's a quick way for you to kind of rule in or rule out uh, am i really going to enjoy it here and am i um am i going to do you know great things you know we we talked the last time a little bit about how your own sense of what good work to you changes over time and certainly is different between different people you know some people might um really like we, we talked a bit about you know my my own past where i much more cared about you know maybe some of the engineering priorities and earlier on and then later in my career i'm much more cared about the, the, the customer and um, kind of business value generated and that that will come through in in what the, what the team and the business really really value um, it um, it is one that has has definitely served served me well uh, I do have actually two very uh, specific examples around this as, as well um, and I, again I'll, I'll just tell these very quickly um, the, actually, it was the first time I was looking for work in, in London. This is maybe, it's, it's a good while ago. Um, and I was half thinking of going into kind of banking, fintech, maybe consultancy. And um, I was in this interview for a, a big consultancy and we went through the process and the person who was interviewing me felt really satisfied and um was kind of kind of saying, you know, okay, you you have the job, and I, I hadn't had the opportunity to ask any questions yet. So, and I actually really was feeling quite nervous about the idea of working for a consultancy. Didn't really understand whether it would fit. So my very first question was around culture and values. She totally did not get it. <laughs> so I asked, like, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, what was the culture? What's the culture like here? And uh, she stopped and she said, um, oh, good question. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're very multicultured here. We've got people from Eastern Europe and uh, other parts of the world. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, the, the you know, the values. What, what, what do you prioritize? How, how do you work? I, I have this picture of a, um, of a consultancy, which is quite authoritarian and doesn't really uh, prioritize independence. And um, uh, yes, might be customer focused but maybe subservient to the to, to, to the client's needs you know and uh, she's like oh okay right I, I see what you mean about culture yeah yeah and then she started talking about the canteen and and people kind of hanging around there I was like no 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 you really don't get it um and that was my kind of light bulb moment was really like this this is not a place that I'm gonna fit you know I guess it went it went worse because then I asked, you know, I presume I don't need to wear a suit all of the time. And she's like, no, 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 you, you do need to wear a suit. Like, oh, shit. And then at the time I had long hair, too. And she she was like, um, and of course, men have to be well groomed. 
well-groomed and I was like well what do you mean by well-groomed do you mean I have to shave no well-groomed I was like oh you have to, I have to cut my hair <laughs> no way. but the, the, where the real culture clash was that she um she was like well okay so uh, those were good questions but you know uh you you it looks um well how did she phrase it she was like uh, okay so um this looks like a fit and I was like, no, 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 I don't think it is. And she was trying to show me where I would be sitting and things like that. And I was like, no, I, and it, it, I, the way I remember it, I, I kind of was shouting a bit. I probably just raised my voice a little bit. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm sitting there with my hair cut in a suit, like no matter, no matter what, what it is. And then, you know, if I had not asked the questions about what is the culture like, and you, you know, maybe some of the other things were were um, were relatively positive. Um, honestly, though, I look back at that, and I'm I feel like that that she, as an interviewer, probably was done a disservice, and that she probably had never had much experience in maybe what to look for or how to maybe answer questions like the the ones that were thrown at me. Um, I did have another interview a few days later with, and we we talked before about how I worked at uh, at Disney for a good while. And I went to, to to chat with Disney a few days later, and I still had this bad experience with the culture mismatch, mismatch uh, fresh in my mind, and uh, went into the Disney building in in Hammersmith, and um, there's a lot of heavy Disney branding in there. And in the lift, they play Disney radio. And um, the radio, the music in the lift was actually playing hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And I almost like pressed the emergency stop button of like, get me out of here, get me out of here. But the the, the guy who was interviewing me, who later became my uh, line manager, uh, when the, the music came, came on and he saw me panicking, he did just turn around and go, I fucking hate it too. Don't worry, this shit is not the way it works. And and that for me was the clue. Okay, actually, you know, maybe company culture uh, has a certain um, aspect to it, but the team culture can, can be different, particularly in a bigger organization. You know, we, we have this anecdote quite often about um, that you know, people quit their manager more than they quit a, a company um, or, or vice versa in a positive way that it's often the manager who retains great talent rather than necessarily the company. And I think that's absolutely right. So, you know, yes, you can see maybe some of the values uh, described for the company written on their website or whatever and think that that you can prepare for. But uh, getting to understand how your line manager thinks about uh, working together and what they prioritize is uh, is something that's just so important to, to to understand. And again, then to link this back to the um, to the earlier point about um, trying to do the the job in the interview. Part of that is to understand will we be working together. If so, what will that relationship look like? Um, how should we communicate? Uh, you know, do if I go off and you know offer solutions, is that going to be um, rewarded, or you know, do, would you prefer to to be a decision maker in that? Um, 
though you very quickly begin to understand what what does this person value and they see here is somebody who is eager to understand how I work this is somebody who's going to be kind of responsive to feedback and um, fun to work with shall we say um, so th these two bits for me I have felt make it maybe easy is too long too strong a word but make it a lot easier to be moving forward in that process show that you're um, aligned with the, the, the values that, that the team and the, the manager in particular uh, really cares about and, and lean into doing the, the job already. Uh, and in each of those cases, I've, I've seen it, it work over and over again, both as a candidate myself and as, as, a, as an interviewer. Other than the question that you asked about culture, what other questions do you typically ask at interview? So the, the team configuration around you, I think, is an important one to understand. Because the stakeholders that you're going to be working with are um, really what's going to kind of shape your the, the role and also kind of speaks to, you know, the level of responsibility that, that you might have. Uh, you, you know, if you maybe have a, 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 an ambition or intention to be in a slightly more senior role, but the way that the... Um, the people that you're going to work with is described is more of like you're, you're going to fit in this little box. Then you know you might you might quite quickly learn that doesn't that doesn't feel uh, you know aligned with, with my expectations. Whereas if you hear, yeah, you know you're going to have to work with these different parts of the business and um, you know make your own kind of independent decisions and uh, and then kind of communicate them in in, in this in this way or whatever. Then it, it, it's a, like a very strong um, signal as to whether it, it, it matches your expectations or not. Uh, th that that for me is a is a really good one and a really practical one and really independent of the kind of role that you're doing. It's like who am I going to work be working with? And here again, it actually can be helpful for you to to j just look in LinkedIn and see see who's there. This works especially well for a smaller company. Uh, not not so much obviously for for bigger companies, um, but but that can if you've already kind of shown and it's only like one minute's homework to go and look at the link LinkedIn and see what kind of people are there. Uh, you know you might see. Let, let's let's continue to use the engineering example. You might see okay, there's ten engineers. Okay, how how is that team configured? Are we all working together? Is there you know smaller little um, squads? Uh, you know, do we all work on the same thing? Uh, do will I be working with uh, designers or a product manager? Um, will I be close to the customer? These these kinds of um, team configuration questions is another big one for me. Practically speaking, how have you gone about starting to look for work? So, all the way from like, do you apply for a job? Do you use your network? Like, mm. what do you do? So I think rather naturally, it's more network focused as I have uh, um, grown in my career than it, it, it was in the past, which was much more of um, uh, 
you know, search, searching for work. And it also shifted depending on, uh, you know, when I used to work as a more in contract roles compared to, of course, being, you know, part of a founding team. The, the context is, is, is different there. I can, some, I can think of the, the very first job interview that I did proper job interview. This was at, at Motorola. Uh, I was still an undergrad, undergraduate at the time. And actually it was ego that, that drove that. Um, I was already, you know, kind of doing odd jobs around in different places. And so I, I didn't really feel the need to go and get a job, but um, there was a few people in my class who had who had um, uh, heard about this um, internship role, and were going to apply, and the, my ego kicked in, and I was like, "Well, I'm clearly better than them, <laughs> so so I'm going I'm going to go and um, and be the person that they hire," uh, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> it was the absolute worst reason. <laughs> To go and and uh, be sitting in that interview, um, but it it it, it obviously uh, turned out well, and I I really enjoyed that role for the for the years that I was there, um, and it, it opened up so many opportunities for for, for doing that. Um, but that was the that was the very first um, kind of, kind of um, proper uh, kind of corporate inter- interview that I went through. In the as a contractor, then if I think about the different places where I've I've um, taken contract roles, it has been in Ireland, in Australia, both in in Sydney and Melbourne, and then a, a good bit here in in London as well. Uh, how how did I approach that at the time? This is pre LinkedIn for a lot of the a lot of these examples. Um, so I did make use of agencies quite a lot. Uh, that was also helpful just to kind of manage the the um, employment contracts and, and things like that, you, you know, particularly in a place like Australia where I had just moved to and needed somebody to kind of, um, you know, have an umbrella company around me and, and, and manage payroll and things like that. Uh, so agencies were definitely uh, something that I made heavy use of. Uh, the, the the challenge there is that you've got this buffer between you. Like you might communicate to a recruitment agent, here's what I'm interested in. And then they're going to translate that uh, slightly differently to their clients. Hence why, for example, uh, you know, I gave those two examples, uh, little mini stories of, of two interviews in Melbourne. Uh, both of them were misunderstandings about what the job was and what, what you know, what, what, whether I was a fit or not. Uh, obviously, the second example, it did work out in the end, um, even though they were looking for a webmaster and that was not what, what I was interested in. Uh, but, the, you know, the the, the, the problem was that the, the, the recruitment agent that I was working with didn't know how to translate that. Uh, the example like ending up at Disney, that was a little bit more deliberate, a, a little bit more in, in my own hands where I had um, 
had some uh, bad experiences at interviewing at some of the more kind of uh, financial and consultancy institutions and then kind of said, all right, I need to look elsewhere. Um, the media space is probably more um, uh, um, of, a, of a fit for me. And so where it was looking specifically for, for contract roles there and applying, uh, applying directly for that. That is perhaps the last time that I was going to actively applying for, for jobs. Ever since then, it has been much more network. Uh, so whether that be founding my own company with, with, uh, with others or joining as a part of a founding team, you know, as a, a CTO in with them, uh, you know, a CEO who might have already started. They were nearly all people that I knew already or were referrals where somebody who, who knew that uh, founder had said, hey, um, if you move quickly, Paul might be available uh, at the moment. Um, before Founders Factory, I did entertain quite a few of those kinds of introductions. Uh, I, they were less interviews at that stage. I, I think it was fair to say that as you grow in seniority, the um, ability for people to kind of put you through a more kind of rigorous interview process, especially when it's early stage startup, it becomes uh, both a harder ask on, on you as a candidate and also um, maybe feels a little bit less, less appropriate as well. Uh, there's a, there is an, an extra dynamic when it comes to being that kind of startup CTO role and that quite often you're talking to somebody who does not know how to evaluate your skill set. They don't have the technical expertise that they're looking to bring to the founding team. And so it does become much more of a chat around you know, the, the mission and values alignment that I was talking about earlier and more of a chat rather than like a, a, a formal interview. Uh, and, you know, that if, if, if that, if you're finding that alignment, almost certainly that will become multiple chats where you kind of beat for coffee, maybe outside of a, an office or something like that. And just really kind of, begin to explore the, the opportunity that we're talking about, uh, kind of push on the boundaries of who else is in the team so far, what, what are our ambitions about what the team could look like. Uh, if it's very early stage, clearly a, a key question will be, you know, what, why are we at um, in terms of capital? Do we have some funding behind us and what will that enable us to do? If not, um, you know, what's the story we need to tell in order to start that, that fundraising round. So much less formal than, uh, than you, you, you know, um, past experience. But the, you know, to answer your question specifically, if I think back of all, you know, even, you know, in the last 15 years, I have not gone actively looking or something new the opportunities have, have come to me i think it's 
it's quite idolized finding work through your network. It's almost seen as a bad thing that you apply to a job, but a good thing if you found it through your network. Um, is that necessarily the case? No, clearly not. Uh, and for two reasons. One obvious reason is that you might not have a, a network in the place that you're looking. Uh, that, that certainly was the case in in, um, in different countries that I've moved to and um, did not have a network there already. Uh, and that you, sh you shouldn't hold that against anybody. Uh, in fact, I usually see it as a positive thing if somebody is uh, comfortable to go and move to a new country and confident enough about uh, their capabilities to um, explore work opportunities there that is that in many ways kind of trumps the, the network point. And then the second is maybe a little bit more subtle. Networking takes work. Um, you know, you, if you went and told younger me, hey, you should focus on your network, I would have been like, fuck off. That, that's, I'm not interested in that. You know, I, I just want to do the, do, I want, to, I want to play with computers. I, I, I'm, I'm not the people person who's going to be off schmoozing and going to different events and trying to get to know as many people. I, I'm, I mean, I still do have a bit of aversion to this, but now I have learned that uh, paying attention to network not only enables me to identify new opportunities, but it also um, helps others as well, whether that be, uh, you know, referrals that I can make uh, or, um, you know, even for, for, for the business itself, you know, clearly the attraction of talent uh, is a key skill that anybody would be looking for in a startup CTO. And, and so if you're able to speak confidently about your network, then uh, that is going to um, put you ahead of, of, of maybe a, a CTO candidate who, who maybe hasn't paid as much attention to their network. But it, but it, it requires effort. And that's everything. That's not just connecting on LinkedIn. Um, that is, you know, regularly reaching out to people, keeping in touch with them, checking in as to where they are. Um, uh, you know, if you're working on something that maybe has some overlap, sharing it with them, reaching out to maybe ask some questions, maybe you're hitting a challenge and they have some expertise. Uh, you know, that's keeping you in in their in their mind. And then even there's the the uh, the, the physical element too of you know go go for coffee. More and more my my preference is go for a pint. Um, uh, you can you can pull people together as well uh, in in bigger groups, and that's a, that's a great way to connect. And that works very effectively if you are the one who's pulling people together. For pretty much all of the last few startups, I have a Google group which has all of the previous employees. And every now and then, although not the last two years, um, because uh, uh, big groups out in pubs has not been the done thing the last two years. But uh, for 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 a long time, I would then maybe every year or so reach out to that group and say, hey, you know, who, who wants to, to come and hang around for an evening? Um, and if, you know, if maybe the, the team was 
20 people, you know, five years ago, maybe, maybe five of them will, will still come out. But, um, that, that, that again, it, it requires work. You know, you, you can't just take that for granted and assume that the person that you worked with 10 years ago that you're connected in LinkedIn will respond when you, when you or think of you when, when somebody has something that might be of interest to you. I'll wait for the invite. Um, <laughs> How do you how do you decide between offers? And I'd love to know like times in the past where you've had multiple offers and what decision making process you've you've practically gone through to weigh it up. Yeah. Uh we might have touched upon this the last time we, we, we caught up Ben, but mm. um the one that sticks in my mind was the um was thinking about the, the founders factory opportunity, which is obviously the, the you know the, the last job decision that I made. And I think I might have mentioned this, but maybe it bears repeating. I had had a couple of chats with a, a few other founders, uh, many of whom I, I I quite liked and liked what they were doing. Um, when I look back now and think about those options. I'm not going to name names, but there are two in particular that I did say no to that are now um, billion dollar businesses. And the people who are part of those founding teams are all very um, wealthy and successful. And uh, there's part of me that feels regret on that missed opportunity. And yet, when I go back and think about the different options that I had, then one of the reasons why Founders Factory was clearly the only option, it was because of these points that I've kind of come back to so many so often, the mission and values alignment. So how we were going to work was something that we had talked through quite a bit. Uh, and I felt very much uh, aligned on that. And then more importantly for me, uh, the mission that we were setting out to to work on, which is about empowering founders, taking the lessons that we've had from previous startups and applying them uh, to um, many different businesses. Once I started thinking about it for like, it did not take long for me to think this is the only place I can be because it speaks to the problems that I feel are worthwhile solving. And the mission is something that I, I absolutely believe in. And the people that, um, uh, you know, can can be around me are, are ones that I'm excited to work up, to work with. And, um, yeah, there might be some regrets, but but that that for sure was was the was the thing. And again, if I go back to the. Um, let's let's take that um, consultancy firm versus a few days later interviewing at Disney you know that that was a long time before but it, it really boiled down to the same thing you know do i do i feel like you know the the, the mission and values are, are are things that i i i care about yes therefore the, the, this is the place you know um the, the the rest you can you can kind of figure out uh and it, you know, the, I kind of believe as well that if if you if you do have a, a you know good alignment in um, on these kinds of topics, you can be an agency for change for yourself and within the within the role. You can shape uh, 
you can shape things around you that 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 suit you. You're not a you're not a passive participant in the in in the organization. You can um, take that alignment and use that to kind of drive um, your own. Um, position within the company, what it is that you feel will be in, like important to move things forward. And, and okay, maybe that's not always the case, but I've been lucky enough that I, I've, I've been in, I've, I've, because I paid attention to the kind of mission and values alignment side, I, I've been given the space to, um, to, shape a bit what, what what my role should look like and how I could have an impact for the company, which quite often was maybe different to how the person that was hiring me originally might have seen it. Has the way that you've weighted compensation changed as your career has developed? All right, that is a good question. I was paid more in, uh, before. In pre-startup pre time, I, was, I definitely earned a lot more. Um, uh so that that has definitely changed um yeah how do i think about that yeah you know when as a contractor i did prioritize cash um so you know i had my day rate and it was pretty high um so back in uh back when i First, like the first contract in in London was probably five hundred a day. Um, what I wanted was to put cash in the bank, and then I would go and travel, and then I would probably spend all of that money traveling for maybe three months or six months or twelve months or something, and then I come back and do another contract and prioritize cash in the bank again. Uh, once into the startup world, clearly the bet is much more on equity. But nearly all of my bets have not panned out. Um, so I've taken the salary sacrifice and not had the equity reward. And um, yeah, there, there are times again when I have regret on this. So I do know, I do know others who've gone on a bit more of a conventional kind of maybe corporate path and have continued or maybe continued with contracting and consultancy. And, you know, I have put a lot of money in the bank account, bought a house, have lots of stuff. I don't own a house or I don't own a car. Or I don't, I'm not very financially secure. Uh, it would be fair to say. Um, and that is because I've spent the last 10 or 15 years prioritizing equity over, um, over salary. Now, should I have done that? Sometimes I think maybe maybe not. But then, I mean, we we were chatting the last time a little bit, Ben, about how you know, yes, it was opportunistic, but some of the experiences that I have gained have put me in a great position in my current role. And I, and I think that is true. And I do also believe that, uh, you know, the um, equity that I hold within Founders Factory will pay off um, in a big way. Uh, so it'll probably all work out in the end. 
but certainly, yeah, to answer the question specifically, has my priorities on compensation changed? Absolutely. You know, contractor focus was cash and bank these days, um, much more the equity side, but there is part of me that definitely feels the pressure of taking too many bets with, with just the focus on equity. There are, after all, um, kind of basic needs, um, particularly if you've got a you know a family and kids and all that kind of stuff that that just you know mean that you you do have a base salary that that that, that grows. It almost like as we've spoken, when you've gone into an interview, it's like you already know what you're going to be doing the job for, and then you're being hired to do that job. I'm so conscious that so many of the people who use court, a lot of the time they make the decision because they're kind of like half know how to do the job, half don't. And they almost mm. take the job to learn. I wonder where about that fits into you. I think that it would be fair to say that that uh, that was on my mind too. Whether that be a new industry or maybe a new technical challenge uh, or maybe a different team configuration or something like that. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I, absolutely, that would would be on my mind as well. Um, mm. um, perhaps a little bit less so in this. Well, actually, if I think about even just this, that you know, that, that last decision around Founders Factory, I knew nothing. I knew fuck all about building an incubator, studio, and accelerator. Um, but the the you know operations experience in early stage startup, I felt confident about. Um, I, I was probably a little bit naive to think that the you know building a, a studio and accelerator program was going to be straightforward. It clearly wasn't. Um, but uh, if I think about others as well, like I, very deliberate, I, there's one very deliberate example that I can think of. I have spent most of my career, certainly in the early stages, in web, and um, a, a few startups ago. I recognized, shit, I've not done anything in mobile. So next business that I'm going to, uh, you know, ne- next startup will be will be mobile focused. And that, that was just like a, a, I mean, it wasn't a, a, you know, must have, but it was certainly what I prioritized in terms of the chats that I was having at that time. And, um, one of the th- reasons that uh, I, w- I was drawn to, I was, you know, again, through network, somebody introduced me to uh, a CEO who was looking for a CTO and it was uh, mobile first. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is, this is definitely fitting with uh, an area of interest for me because I've, uh, you know, I've never led a team that's been um, uh, working on, on mobile across Android and iOS. We've had, I've had bits of mobile experience in other places but it was it was it was more tangential than like we are a, a mobile first business how did you know how much money to ask for <laughs> um okay uh if i go back to previous um like early in my career uh, you know the, the day rates were, were pretty well understood and working through recruitment agencies really helped with that Especially when I was moving to a new country and no fucking idea what 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 people were supposed to be charging, you know, a recruitment agent would tell me, and then they'd probably add, you know, a, a lot on top. <laughs> um, 
and then you might what I might often do is even then just ask my employer what what, what they're being built they'd usually tell me and then you know I could kind of gauge all right here you know here's where I'm maybe being undercharged or, or overcharged or whatever so that that was much more simple back in the in the, con- the con- contracting is a bit more ruthless anyway so you know I think I think it's a bit simpler uh, for the startup CTO technical leader role that let's talk about that a little bit because this is a, a bit more of a complicated one um, the first distinction obviously should be whether you are one of the, the the founders or not and of course if you are one of the founders then there is of course an expectation that you are taking that that salary sacrifice um, within uh, the founders factory ecosystem we generally have um, a ballpark of around uh, like a base salary of about 50k for a, as an initial salary for a lot of our founders once you start going a bit beyond that it, it does look like you know it, you know a seed round of or you know very early um, you know friends and family round or something like that if it's you know a couple of hundred k and all of that is going into salary just for you that's not going to look right, you know. So you, you you do want the salary to be to be relatively low at, at very early stage. Uh, but again, we have to go back to the point that I made earlier. At different life stages, people have different needs and different uh, commitments that they that they they can't really get out of. You know, you might be paying a mortgage, or you might be uh, you know paying for childcare, or um, you know whatever your circumstances are, and I, especially if it, if if this is you know a, a startup conversation where it's a small team, just being transparent with that is is the is the the obvious thing to to do. And um, you know I've often felt really comfortable just to talk very directly about here are my costs. You know I've got I'm paying this much on rent, I'm paying this much on school or, or, or um, child care uh, you know this is this this is my uh, you know spend for the year if we if we cover that good um, that's 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 the base if there's then you know as you move forward with the business and as, as you begin to um, raise some some capital maybe there's room for for growth there but um, the um, the key bit, I think, is is just to be transparent about about what 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 your base is. I mean, I mean clearly, then as well, there is the um, you you do have to look around at at the, at the market. I I generally haven't, but but that should be something that you should do, and I recommend others do. There are plenty of resources around which kind of give you a sense of of what um, what the, what kind of average salaries are. Uh, so and there's a couple of different sources that I recommend. First is, you know, a lot of agencies do just kind of publish reports on average salary by different um, by different roles in different regions. Um, you can Google that. You'll find a PDF report. You can you can look at them. I do find that quite often because they they usually look at kind of national averages. They can they can often be um, undervalued i would say so you might see you know average and you know front-end engineer is 50k but you know you might expect a bit more um 
thing, things like uh, Glassdoor and, and Indeed and others obviously do publish uh, summaries of um, salaries across all of the jobs posted as well. That's another good source. And then I would say, um, you know, platforms like Cord um, or, or other equivalents are a great place as well to get a sense of, of, of what um, what, what current salaries are. And that's especially important in um, like times like we have at the moment where we're seeing a lot of salary inflation. You know, the last year, uh, you know, we've, we've seen some big jumps and and if you're not paying attention to that, you, you might... Um, you might miss out on that opportunity of um, of, of kind of put, pushing up your salary. This is probably more important for <clears throat> for like an individual contributor role or, or, or something like that. I, like if you're the if you're um, in that startup CTO role, your head has got to be a lot more in uh, you know the uh, thinking about the business. And and the, the the financial security of the business as a whole, um, even if average salary for a, you know a, a, a startup CTO is you know 150k or, or whatever, you know if if your startup can't afford that, you know there's no point in dumping on the desk saying I fucking need this, yeah, uh, that, that that isn't going to work. Where does equity come into it? Equity is another tricky topic. It, you, you know, there are plenty of resources, again, that can help you to get a sense check of what is appropriate. Um, a good source, um, Index Ventures, has, has some good on, uh, resources on uh, um, on incentivizing employees, and therefore you can get a good feel there of uh, what, um, what might feel uh, appropriate. The, the reality is is that it, this is a much more opaque part of the of the, the compensation package. I talked earlier about how salaries there's you know reports produced people like Glassdoor and Indeed. You can go and look on Cord and you can see salaries advertised. You will very rarely have the same kinds of sources of data for for equity. Uh, perhaps rightfully so because it it. The, the truth is is that context really does matter here. Um, again, let's just look at a very simple example of whether you're part of the founding team as, as, as a founder. Of course, you would expect uh, you know, to have a, a decent chunk of equity within that business. Whereas if you come along later as maybe um, uh, in, into a business that's already moving forward, you would imagine you would be getting options in a, a, an op- option pool, and and there, uh, of course, you know you 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 get a much smaller amount. The two maybe there's a couple of things I I could add on top of this. There's 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 two that that spring to mind. Um, first of all, I would say just like the um, just like the salary point that I was talking about, if you're a startup CTO, a technical leader into an early stage business, be transparent about your base. I do talk, try and talk transparently about what does the equity look like as already distributed within the, um, within the startup. Hopefully you will be talking to a founder who's relatively comfortable to talk about that. They might be able to say, you know, okay, well, we have 
20% already allocated to investors who've um, uh, done that first round. You know, they might be able to talk about how um, there's 10% set aside for a, a share option pool, and maybe the remainder is for the founding team, and maybe there's you know, already two of them in place and they're looking for a technical co-founder. And so if you are able to, to talk like at, at that high level, at being transparent about what it is, that, that would be a, a really good signal. There are some tools around uh, on, on the web which um, can help you to at least start a conversation around equity distribution. So you can kind of plug in who's doing what, you know, who's going to be leading the um, investment conversations, who's going to be managing people, who's driving strategy, who's going to be the voice of the customer, who's uh, defining product features, uh, and so on and so on. And um, some of them do kind of spit out an answer at the end of like, okay, here's our recommendation of what the equity split should be. Um, the, um, the reality is that it, it has to be like a genuine conversation. You can't just say, computer told me, it, it, it comes out like this. So that's that's one way of thinking about it, just the genuine, open, transparent conversation around this. Um, there's a, a second point that I, I think is important as well. Equity is not necessarily a linear thing. That's a mistake that some people think about when they think early stage startup, that if, um, you know, let's say I have 10% of a business and then every subsequent round, there's 20% of dilution. You know, the, a very simple model is to think, okay, I'm going to get diluted down, diluted down, diluted down. But that is not the way it actually works in reality. In reality, cap tables are adjusted in every round and they're adjusted such that those people who are contributing um, value to the business are um, properly incentivized and those who maybe who no longer are are who um, are, um, are are going to be diluted down so if you believe in yourself and you believe in your capability of driving significant value for the business you shouldn't be too worried about what your equity stake is at the beginning because it's going to increase either the the CEO or the founding team has to recognize that or indeed sometimes it'll be the board who recognize that and similarly if you own 50% of a business, but then you're no longer active, any incoming investor is going to go, that person is no longer active in the business. We need to dilute them down and reward the people who are driving the business forward today. Uh, and I've seen that over and over again. So, you know, the lesson that I take away from that is, yes, it's important to have that open, transparent conversation at the beginning, but but don't fall into the trap of thinking that then you know equity is locked in and there's no movement from thereafter. That is never the case. I think a lot of people, uh, especially if you use Cord, will be considering share options versus equity. Yeah. Um, what unfriendly share option terms should someone look out for? Hmm. Well, industry standard terms are four-year vesting with a one-year cliff. Uh, so if you see something outside of that, you would probably want to ask why. Um, so, you know, if you see a two-year cliff, uh, then that would be suspicious. Or if there, if you know, there's um, uh, a vesting schedule that goes beyond four years as well, that would be not very industry standard. You might sometimes see um, back-weighted uh, vesting schedule. 
so maybe it's worth explaining that to people. So a typical vesting schedule would be that every year, a quarter of your total allocation will become available to you, usually vesting on a month by month basis, uh, except for that first year where typically if you leave within that first year, you walk away with nothing. For a, a back loaded or back weighted uh, vesting schedule, rather than it being a quarter per year, what you might see is something like 10% in the first year, maybe 20% in the second year, uh, and so on, adding up to 100% uh, in that four-year schedule. The reason to do that as an employer is to prioritize retention. Um, but it's not very common to see those terms these days. Like uh, the the most common is the one-year cliff, four-year vesting, and a, a straight linear um, vesting schedule. So my, my suggestion would be uh, if you um, if you see something outside that, that those industry standards, then ask about it. Then the other one that often catches people up, particularly if you're joining a, a, something that's a little bit later, is the strike price. So if you join very early on, the strike price, and I'll talk about UK companies more specifically, but it does apply in other um, jurisdictions as well. So the strike price will be set um, in the UK by HMRC and how uh, the value of the business is currently perceived. If it's very early, then you can assume that there's no value in the business yet. And so you can set the strike price, the price that you need to pay to buy your options, i.e. to exercise your, your, your option on those shares, um, either when you're, well, mostly when you're, when you're leaving. Um, that will be maybe 0 0.0001 or a penny or something small when you join early stage. If you are joining a later stage business, maybe it might even just be a year or two later, that business now has value and your strike price could be uh, potentially pretty high. It might be um, maybe a pound, it might be 10 pounds, it might even be 100 pounds. And let's say you've got options over, uh, let's say it's a thousand shares, right? So, so um, you know, if you want to exercise that and it's a hundred pounds a share, I ain't, I ain't get that fucking money. Um, you, you probably don't have that money either, especially, and this, this is much more the case in the recent years than, than maybe it used to be in the past. So if you go back dot com era, you know, the route to IPO was very quick. Uh, you could maybe expect a business to go public within a, within a couple of years. You know, the last decade we've seen businesses stay private for longer and longer and longer. Uh, you've got you know, businesses like Stripe doing, you know, series G's and H's and, and still private. Um, and so your uh, liquidity is not there. Um, and if you are uh, leaving the business for whatever reason, you do generally have this time period in which you need to exercise your options. Again, this will definitely vary depending on um, 
which country you're in, which uh, tax jurisdiction you yourself are a resident within. But let's just talk about the UK for a minute. Uh, so most of the share option schemes within the UK are under the EMI scheme. The EMI scheme is really great because it's tax efficient, but specifically the EMI scheme does mandate a 90-day window from you leaving the company and you exercising your options. And so quite often what you might find is that you're stuck with this question, you know, do I fork out, maybe it's five grand, maybe it's 10 grand, maybe that, whatever, anyway, it's going to feel uncomfortable for this bet that maybe the startup is going to be worth a lot more in the future. And that that's a really difficult decision to, to make. So one thing that I would suggest people watch out for is does the company actually allow you to exercise your options beyond that window? So sometimes what you might see is that actually the company is comfortable for you to exercise your options within a five-year period or perhaps even a 10-year period. You won't get the tax efficiency in the UK if it's an EMI scheme, but at least then you're able to exercise your options when you know that you... Um, you have an upside to it rather than taking a bet. Um, so specifically on things to look out for, standard terms, four-year vesting, one-year cliff, uh, kind of conventional linear um, vesting schedule, uh, watch out for the strike price. And um, uh, I think there was another one that I had in the middle. I'm forgetting it now. There's a misconception about when you achieve liquidity with share options. Um, when should someone expect some kind of liquidity from those share options? Yeah, so to, for most startups, you know, it, 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 it is many years before you see an exit, particularly if it's going to be a big exit. You might see a small exit maybe in the first year or two if it's like an aqua hire or... Um, you know, frankly, you know, what has happened to a lot of the businesses that I worked on, maybe we sold some of the assets because the business itself didn't, didn't work out and we could maybe count that as a bit of an exit, but it really wasn't worth valuable. And of course, it's worth remembering that um, all investors will have some form of hurdle to overcome. And just to explain that a little bit further, you know, if you've taken on um you know, let, let's make the number simple, you know, a million pounds of investment, then, uh, and, you know, you, there's an exit for um, a small amount, let's, let's call it one, let's call it two million, then of course, the, the majority of that is going to go to the investors, they're going to come out first, and they're going to have a, a hurdle to cross to, which might be, uh, you know, 1.2, 1.5x what, what they what they've put in, and they're they're going to take all of, all of that. So what's what's left for you as team, if it's an early exit, is is, is going to be almost nothing. Um, if you were looking for uh, you know an exit that involves uh, you know that that um, kind of billion dollar valuation, which is maybe you know we've been acquired by Microsoft or we've we've gone public. There are rare exceptions to this, but normally it takes seven, eight, nine, ten years. It's um, not something that generally comes quickly. We we do have in recent years some some very big obvious counterexamples to that, 
but um, but that is more the time frame that you should you should be expecting, and therefore, you know things like uh, you know the time period in which you can exercise your options is something to to keep in mind. Um, I recently uh, have gotten a little bit of cash back from a business that I. This is a business called MyDeco, which. Um, uh, you know, I was there from the beginning from two. When did we start that? I think we we started that not long after I moved to Japan, which was like maybe 2007, I think, maybe 2007. 2007. Sounds yeah. about right. Um, so that is 15 years ago. Um, and I got a I got a check in the post a few months ago and I'm expecting another little bit of cash. Um uh, sometime soon, not much, um, but uh, that is an example of how long it might take <laughs> to to, um, to to see those rewards from equity. Love it! Oh, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. It was great to chat, Ben. The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at bennettcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.